Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, it's SST-172, the Fred Frith album, The Technology of Tears. We've had Fred on previously, on episode, his music anyways, on episode SST-147, the Fred Frith and Henry Kaiser album, with enemies like these who needs friends. But this is our first and only time to have a Fred Frith solo album, and we've got a special guest. Yeah, Fred Frith is on the show. Fred, of course, is a legendary avant-garde multi-instrumentalist, mostly known for his guitar playing, of course. Fred has also played with a ton of people that we've discussed on the show, like Henry Kaiser, but also John Zorn, Laswell, BC, the list goes on and on. So it's very cool to have him on the show to give us an inside scoop on this record. Yeah. Over 400 recordings, this guy, like, it's just amazing. Yeah, no, uh, yet another release where we would not have really learned anything about it without having the uh, driving creative force behind it on the show. Yeah, and it's unique too, right? It's our first dance performance composition i think strictly mm -hmm. speaking yeah i think so very unique can i hit you with a few spiels first yeah man okay so the first one relates to the band the scientists mm. it was just announced that they're going to release their first album in 35 years and i've got a tie-in to another spiel right away here but they're of course the legendary Australian swampy proto grunge rockers. Uh, you and I are fans. I know um, this is a follow up to their 2019 EP. It's a new album out beginning of June on In the Red Records. Really looking forward to that. But here's the tie in, Brant, and it's a quiz. Okay. For you. Okay. Who does a great cover of the scientist's song Swampland? Oh, well, that's the Mono Man. Exactly. And. There's a new book coming out about Estrus. Really? Yeah. It's called Estrus, Shoveling the Shit Since 87. Ooh, I got to read that. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be so good. It covers the Estrus label, of course, the, the garage rock label from Seattle. It's a coffee table book on Carrero Press. Hmm. The author, Chris Albert Coyle, and designer Scott Suguchi, they have a monthly podcast as well called Podshock huh. to promote its release. So you know that's going to be a great book to check out. We're huge fans of that label, Estrus. The artwork, if it's a coffee table book, will also be killer. You know it. Yeah, it'll have arch entry um, work for sure. Exactly. My next spiel, though, Brant, to put you on the spot even more, we're going to go into a particular zone. <laughs> the comp. So Exactly. <laughs> On the SS tree, a new comp just announced called Punk Rock Saves Lives. Mm -hmm. On I Am Records, uh, this was posted on the Descendants uh, feed. It's out in May. It's a fundraiser for a Colorado nonprofit to benefit the PRSL Health Inequality cause. It has a Descendants song on it, Cortez, but it also has an HR song on it called mm. Stay Close, which I was really surprised to see. So there's two on the tree on that comp we're checking out in a couple of weeks. Awesome. And then my final spiel is on Rock Docs. Nice. You're okay. kind of hitting on all of my spiels here too. Am I, am I scooping your spiels? No, you're not scooping me. You're just, we're going to have a theme this week. Nice. Unintentional. 
Nice. Okay. Two rock docs. Both are about being in a band on the road. Do you have a rock doc about that in your spiels? Oh, no, not in my spiels. In my Good. collection, I most oh, certainly do. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course. Anyways, the first one I'll mention, and most people have probably seen this, it's uh, being produced by Dave Grohl. It's called What Drives Us. It's got Flea, Watt, Ian MacKay, the usual suspects. And you say what you will about Dave Grohl, it'll still be a good documentary. I will definitely watch it. The episode of Dave Grohl on Brian Johnson's A Life on the Road is a good episode too. Um, they're kind of spieling about life on the road and it being in a van in particular, and that's kind of what this documentary is about. Um, again, some people love Dave Grohl. Some people can kind of take him or leave him. Sometimes he's a bit too Dave Grohl for me, but I'm interested in checking out this documentary and I'm definitely going to do that. But if you want something more indie with a similar type of theme, a movie was just released on YouTube called Why Am I Doing This? And it's basically the indie rock version of touring, a, a documentary about touring from an indie rock perspective. Eric Fundingsland from a Seattle band called The Bismarck put it together. It's about two hours long or so. And it's free on YouTube, like I said. Um, it's got, of course, bands that kind of would be from the indie scene. There's obviously like Steve Albini's in it. Cohen and Midget from Silkworm and Bottomless Pit are in it. Conan Neutron is on it. Joe Preston is on it. There's some really good stories in it. And it really, it really resonates if you have actually done some indie touring. I'm enjoying that documentary why am I doing this? There's so many stories in it that are hilarious and remind me of my my very short time of being on the road. So it's cool to check out. Awesome, man. That's it, man. What do you got? I have a, kind of a spiel, kind of a concert film spiel that is going to have a slight quiz aspect to it as well. For, for yourself? This is a quiz for... No, this is a quiz for you. Shit. Okay, so it's... A concert film called Erg, A Music War. So my first quiz question is, have you seen Erg, A Music War? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay, well, you've for sure seen the double LP in the yes. used bins. Okay, so it's a British film directed by Derek Burbridge, and the Copeland brothers were involved yes. somehow. So it's basically a montage of concert footage by various groups recorded around 1980. Um like I said, there's a soundtrack. It, you see it all the time. So I'm going to tell you who all's on it, and you, you're going to comment as we go along. <laughs> Just random comments? <laughs> well, I might have some questions. Yeah. Okay. Is this the one that has, like, The Clash, The Cramps? Is this the one? The Clash, no, but The Cramps, yes. Okay. There's okay. another one with The Clash on it that I'm thinking of. Go for it. Okay, so The Police start, start the thing off with a track called Driven to Tears. I know yep. you like The Police, Ryan. I've kind of always written them off as maybe just a mainstream pop band, mm -hmm. but I know I should get more into them. There's probably some really good album cuts there. Yep. Where should I start? With The Police? Yeah. Oh, just listen to their albums in chronological order from start to finish. They are all excellent. Uh, some of it is a little, a little over the top, like a little bit too much sting, hmm. um, but they're all great albums and you really have to ignore a lot of what later came with sting like that aura of sting you need to ignore that 
and and just like appreciate the police for what they are, which was a great power trio that blended punk, reggae, uh, new wave, great musicianship, great songs, great solid albums. There's not a stinker out there, and their their final album is fantastic, and they ended on a on a real high note. Synchronicity, great, great songs on there too. Okay, Wall of Voodoo is on here. No. Almost nothing about them. Well, they're cool. Um, Tell me what I should do with them. Well, you should check them out. Interesting factoid about the band. They were named by Joe Berardi, who was a friend of Stan Ridgway's from Wall of Voodoo and also a member of fellow LA art rock band, the Fibonacci's. Remember them? No way. Yes, I do. Art band? Yeah. Yeah. Aren't aren't you... uh, You're a Stan Ridgway fan, aren't you? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I... I can groove to some wall of voodoo. Okay, Toya Wilcox, I'm gathering, is a pretty big celebrity in the UK where she's from. Not Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not really on my radar until recently. Uh, and yeah, right. she got on mine because she's married to Robert Fripp. And they've been doing these amazing lockdown performances called Sunday Lockdown Lunch. They do all covers. It's become fairly talked about, mainly because Toya doesn't wear a bra during these performances. Yeah, they're they're ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> if you watch like their cover of Enter Sandman, you'll you'll see what all the fuss is about. There's not much fuss there. Go yeah. listen to some police records instead. Don't watch that. <laughs> okay, John Cooper Clark, a poet who was known as kind of the punk poet in the UK in the late seventies. He does a great piece on here called Health Fanatic. I've always seen his name mentioned, but never checked his albums out. Yeah, I don't know anything about him really. Okay, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. This Erg record is, I mean, for, ignore what I just said about the police. This Erg record was like too mainstream for me to even check out any of the bands. Well, I know. Yeah, yeah, me too. But, you know, uh, Oingo Boingo's on here too. Neither, neither of them really move, move me too much. You hear Oingo Boingo get mentioned on the show from time to time by guests because they were kind of on the outskirts of that LA scene. And, of course, Danny Elfman was, I believe, the main songwriter. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea is on here. They do a killer version of uh, their song, I'm on Fire. Yeah, Chelsea's good. Yeah. I always think of Henry Rollins in Get in the Van with Chelsea. Mm-hmm. There. <laughs> when they were touring there in 81 in England, and what's his name? Gene October was being a dick to them. Okay, Echo and the Bunnymen are on here. I dig them. Jules Holland, meh. XTC, I know I should be more into mm-hmm. them. I do, I do love their alter ego band, the Dukes of Stratosphere. There's a great I know those great XTC documentary that is uh, out there, probably on some service that you subscribe to, brand to check it out for sure to get into XTC. Okay, I will. Those Dukes of Stratosphere records were recent recently reissued, so if people listening to this haven't checked those out, they're great. This guy Klaus Nami is on here. There's a documentary about him called The Nami Song. Super campy German dude in a skin tight spacesuit and a crazy falsetto doing this <laughs> theatrical synth pop. It's pretty wild. Athletico Spiz 80, an English new wave punk group doing their apparent hit Where's Captain Kirk? I think they changed their name to Spiz Energy later. I think they kind of changed their name for every release. They're they're on my list that I made while I was watching this of artists to kind of check out dive. Yeah. Okay. The Go-Go's, Do We Got the Beat, oh, yeah. just made me re- want to rewatch the documentary by Allison Eastwood. Yeah, that was a good documentary. Okay, the Dead Kennedys are on here doing Bleed For Me. Awesome footage from L.A. in 1980. 
it this is all pro shot like amazing audio i i have to think they shot entire sets by these bands so but i've never seen seen more footage of that but that's really good steel pulse the great roots reggae band from birmingham's on here gary newman being weirdly cool and driving around the stage on this strange little go-kart type of thing like super 80s futuristic style joan jett and the blackhearts bad reputation i've always loved joan jett i don't think she gets the credit she deserves as far as rock history goes if you haven't seen the kevin kerslake documentary named after the song bad reputation it's really great mm-hmm. you should check that out magazine is on here ryan oh, model yeah. model worker is is the song there we go they're cool i have some of their records um surf punks my beach <laughs> now on record i could never get into this band but i can see why they would have been a live draw like really fun stage show yeah for some reason when i think of the surf punks i always think of that movie back to the beach hmm. yep. uh, i don't i don't know why but i mean there's there are surf punks in the movie back to the beach maybe is why i always think of them but i know that that's that's not the locals only surf punks i know i think of the trauma movie surf nazis must die (laughs) (laughs) uh the members uk punk band that oh yeah you don't you don't see them mentioned a lot kind of ska right Mm, not on this track offshore banking business is the song i thought they were ska maybe i'm wrong on that well, I'm yeah. probably wrong on that. Uh, a few other bands on here. Au Pairs, Skafish, UB40, Splogenous Abounds. Oh, I like Skafish, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Cramps are on here. Tear It Up. You've probably seen this clip. Lux's leather pants are barely on. His chest is all scratched up. He's swallowing the microphone. Ivy's just chewing gum and looking, you know, cool but bored. <laughs> Cool and unimpressed, yeah. <laughs> but you know it's totally cool. Yeah, I get it. I know that the, at least the audio of that entire performance has been bootlegged before. Oh, yeah. Talk about a band that is overdue for a documentary. The Cramps? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's only that one book, too. Like, yeah. that's it. And there is so much history about the Cramps, the, the unit, right? But... Lux and Ivy as individuals, all the players that went through that lineup throughout the years. But then think about the various waves of revivals and cultural impact that Lux and Ivy had on garage music, record collecting, nostalgia, just like it could go Mm -hmm. on and on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a band on here called Invisible Sex. Super cool. Apparently, this was their one and only performance, and they never recorded an album. They're Devo-esque art punk. They're all wearing hazmat suits with goggles. Hmm. See, you can't even see what they look like. Ripping lead guitarist. Uh, I did a bit of Googling. It looks like this guy Tom Toomey, who was at some point later on played in the Zombies, has claimed he was the guitarist in this band. Probably nobody other than the Copeland brothers know the true identity of Invisible Sex, but that's a cool performance. Maybe it was the police. Maybe. <laughs> Pair Ubu's on here. Pretty wild stuff. Devo does a killer version of Uncontrollable Urge. The Alley Cats. Super oh, yeah. awesome. Pretty crazy that their records have never been reissued. Yeah. Uh, John Otway who I knew nothing about prior to this documentary, does a great song called Cheryl's Going Home. 
Sounds like it was a bit of a hit for him, you know, back home in the UK. He gives Lux a run for his money in the wild, over-the-top performance that he gives. Right on. Yep. Gang of Four steals the show on here. No doubt. He'd send in the army is the track they do. Yeah. 999 does Homicide. I talked about 999 way back when I was getting shit off my phone. They're really great on here. I've started digging into them a bit more deeply as per your recommendation, and I agree. There's, uh, They're unfairly overlooked by me for a long time, for sure. Yeah. Flesh Tones, always great. Filmed back home at a club in New York. They have a wicked new record out on Yep Rock called Face the Screaming Werewolf. X is on here doing Beyond and Back, and then it ends with two more police tracks, including an all-star jam on So Lonely. You can get that DVD pretty cheap, Erga Music War. You should check it out, Ryan. Is that where you saw it, or is it on a streaming service? No, I saw it on DVD. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's really good. You'd probably get into some of this stuff. Yeah, I betcha. Some of these bands, yeah. I know half of them really well, and then I know the other half not at all. Yeah, well... Good place to start. Erg, a music war. Check it out. Yeah. That's it for me, man. One spiel? Yeah. Whoa. Well, I mean, it was it was a broad spiel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. You want to get into some technology of tears? Yeah. History lesson, part one. So where should we start on this record, Brand? It's pretty wild. It's got a little bit of everything because it draws from everywhere almost to this record. And it's long. It's really long and all over the place. I have a little Fred spiel here, Ryan, to bring everyone up to speed. This record's actually called, the full title of of it is The Technology of Tears and Other Music for Dance and Theater. Yep. So Fred, I, I know we've talked about him before, but... Just a reminder, Fred was born 1979 in Heathfield, Sussex, England. In the early 70s, he formed avant-garde prog band Henry Cow. In 1978, Fred and drummer Chris Cutler broke away and formed avant-garde rock band Art Bears. After three albums, they split up and Fred moved to New York. He'd already begun a solo career by this point, releasing the With Friends Like These records with Henry Kaiser and 1980's Gravity and 81's Speechless, both on the residence label Ralph Records. He also formed his own label Riff, which he used to release several of his own albums, plus many other artists. While in New York, he's kind of welcomed as a key figure in the city's avant-garde scene. He plays in John Zorn's supergroup Naked City. Uh, He plays again with Henry Kaiser in French Frith, Kaiser & Thompson, He also forms improv rock trio Massacre with Bill Laswell and Fred Mayer, and also experimental group Skeleton Crew, along Mm -hmm. with Tom Cora of The X. In the mid-80s, he began expanding his boundaries as a composer, writing scores for films, theater pieces, and dance ensembles, as well as commissions from art music groups around the world. The Technology of Tears and Other Music for Dance and Theater, uh, sometimes subtitled Music for Dance Volume 1, is the first in a series of Music for Dance albums Fred has made. It was recorded between June of 86 and April of 87 in a number of different studios. The album comprises three suites. The Technology of Tears, commissioned by internationally acclaimed choreographer Rosalind Newman, first performed by her dance company at the Joyce Theatre in New York, February of 87. The second suite, Jigsaw, was commissioned by the 
Concert Dance Company of Boston as a collaboration between Fred, Rosalind, and Pierre Volkos, and funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts and the New Works Program of the Massachusetts Council on the Arts and Humanities. Propaganda is the third suite, commissioned by the Creative Production Company, written and directed by Matthew McGuire, and first performed at La Mama ETC in New York City from May 1st through 24th, 1987. He did work with a few other artists on the project, which we'll get into a, a bit in the interview and also when we go through the tracks. The album has been released in a number of configurations as a double LP in 1988 on Swiss indie label Rec Rec Music. That's the version I have on CD only, and mm. it's missing the propaganda track. Yeah. Yes, it does omit the third suite propaganda. SST released it in 1988 on double LP and also on cassette. It was reissued in 2008 on CD by Fred on his Fred Records imprint, again omitting propaganda. That got a separate CD reissue, again on Fred Records. The original recordings were substantially reduced in length. I'm talking propaganda now. Uh, so to fit on a single side of vinyl. So the CD reissue has the complete recordings restored. That's it, Ryan. That's kind of my primer on this record. Should we throw it over to Fred? Let's do that. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Fred Frith. Fred, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Now, I asked you to come on to talk about the Technology of Tears record. I'm wondering if you can take me back to your move to New York. You moved there around late 70s, early 80s? I arrived in New York in 78. What kind of scene were you walking into? We just had Ned Rothenberg on the show, and he was telling me about the the downtown scene that was just getting going around that time. Yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were a lot of things that would call themselves a downtown scene, and they were kind of separate from each other. So it's it's easy to hook into one thing or another thing, but it was quite surprisingly how separated some parts of it were. I mean, there's the downtown scene, which led to the bang on a can kind of area, which is kind of more like contemporary music kind of a thing. And then there's the downtown improvisers and there's the, you know, loft scene. And I was, I arrived because um, Giorgio Gomelski, I don't know if that name means anything to you. The Stone, Rolling Stones Association? Uh-huh. Well, he started out there and uh, he ended up managing the Yardbirds and he produced the first John McLaughlin record and he was quite a renowned entrepreneur and he became the manager of Magma, which is the biggest uh, independent band in France. And I met him during that period because Henry Cow and Magma often shared the bill. Around 77, I guess, he moved to New York and Henry Cow broke up in August of 78. And in uh, September of 78, I had a phone call from Giorgio saying, um, you should come to New York and uh, I'll send you a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I never know how he managed these things because he never had any money. But anyways, I duly received a ticket to go to New York for his uh, Manny Festival. Right. Where he was trying to bring together the independent scenes of Europe and, and uh, USA. A kind of a 24-hour extravaganza. 
and I he told me I didn't need to bring an instrument. I should just come and check out the scene. So I wasn't even supposed to play. I arrived in New York in um, October '78 and walked from the bus station to his house on 23rd Street. And the first thing I hear is coming from his basement is the sound of Bill Laswell in a kind of a prototype version of Material, but it wasn't called Material then. It was called the Zoo Band. And they were playing uh, one of my pieces oh. from, from the Art Bears. And I was thinking, good God, people know who I am here. So <laughs> that was quite surprising. I guess that just answered my next question, which was going to be, did you know you were going to form a band when you moved to New York? or like I didn't know anything. I just uh, I was I was walking around with a silly grin on my face, thinking this is this is cool. I should move here. <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of interesting people. I mean, in that first, the first I was only there for a long weekend, uh, and um, I mean, I met the Muffins. So there was that whole kind of the American progressive music scene. I met the Residents. I met Laswell. I met various components of the downtown, the prototype downtown scene that was just emerging, like Ned said. And um, not long after that, I met Eugene Chadbourne in Paris, and um, we got talking, and he said, why don't you come back to New York, and I'm doing this project with this guy, Zorn, and uh, he's, he's doing a piece of his called Archery, so I thought, okay, I'll come back to New York. So the second time, the second time I came to New York, I was working with Zorn and Chadbourne in a band with Tom Cora and Wayne Horvitz and uh, Bob Ostertag and all the people who became my dear friends. In fact, so right. So fast forward a bit to uh, this record. I've heard it said that uh, the technology of Tears is kind of a, I don't know if you could call it a trilogy, but it's it expands on the gravity and speechless records. Is that how you look at it as far as like the, the music for dance and theater goes? Absolutely not. No. no? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. Happy to set the record straight on that then. <laughs> no, I mean, I can see that there, I am who I am and I have the background that I have. So obviously there are going to be things in common, whatever I do, you're going to hear um, parts of where I came from and I part of where I came from is definitely folk music so um, there are folk elements on Technology of Tears especially the first part but actually the, the, the thing that I was interested in with that record was not at all that that's just you know because that's the way it comes out mm -hmm. but what I was really interested in was um, was the new technology that was announcing itself at that time um, you know, it was the transition to digital had more or less completely taken over and there was still a lot of controversy about, you know, the quality of digital sound and uh, the Synclavier had just been invented and the Synclavier was uh, kind of the ultimate piece of equipment as it was then seen and nobody could afford it. I knew three people who had one. <laughs> Um, Frank Zappa, Laurie Anderson, and Henry Kaiser, who had to mortgage his house to buy one. I think they cost about 250 grand to wow. buy. Wow. And, and everything you could do in a Synclavier, you can now do in a laptop. So um, it turned out to be a huge dinosaur. But at the time, it was this thing that could do anything. You know, you could sample a symphony orchestra and play it. So it was used a lot in the film industry for, to correct problems after a, you know the film was cut. You know, there were practical things like that, and there and there was it was an incredible tool, 
and it was also kind of completely cold and soulless. And that was kind of what interested me was to make the comparison between um, real sound and sampled sound. So a lot of what you're hearing in Technology of Tears is to do with me working with musicians that I found particularly kind of passionate, like Zorn or Tenko, um, who really put it out there. Um, they hang it all out when they play and then sampling them and playing their voices with a keyboard. So you would hear them in real life and also you would hear them being played by me in this kind of soulless manner. And the contrast between those two approaches to the same material was the thrust of Technology of Tears, hence the title Technology of Tears. The You mentioned the title. Does So how does, uh, and I'm going to butcher the name here, um, I'm referencing the essay on the or poem, I guess, on the back of the album. Uh, I'm not even going to try and say the first name. Herbert? Yeah. Let's call him Herbert. <laughs> Zbigniew. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a poem that I really liked. Um, and it says something. It, it spoke to me about this kind of uh, false tears, fake tears. Um, and that spoke to me about, you know, fake emotion uh, and the technology of, of making something sound like something when it's really not. So the whole artifice question and I, I thought the poem was quite eloquent on that subject mm -hmm. so I use it as a point of inspiration and you know at the same time you know the whole thing is interesting because at the same time it's a it's a dance music commission and um, so the first part um, for example <laughs> it was written for Rosalind Newman and her dance company and um, I had no experience of writing a full-length work for dance at that time, and I, I would say I completely screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, um, it's I, whatever you say about the music, you know, you can like it or not like it, but it's got an undeniable kind of energy and power to it. But what it doesn't have is the possibility that anybody can move to it. It doesn't leave any emotional space for the dance at all. It completely overwhelms, so, so it was very, very hard to dance to. It was just too much, too much information, too much stuff. Maybe somebody could have done it, um, but anyway, I got a review. Um, I don't know which it was. No, I don't think it was the New York Times, but it might as well have been. And it said um, the dancers seemed to be running away from something. Probably the music. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when when Rosalind requests something or commissions something like this, how do you then compose? Do, do you get to see the dance and compose something for it? Or are you just submitting a, a, a piece of work and, and then well, she, no, because she choreographs to it? Usually the dance doesn't exist when you um, are, are making the music. It's going to happen after you've made the music. So that's one interesting thing is that you, you don't know what the dance is going to be because the choreographer doesn't know either. Right. So then you have a, it's an enormous leap of faith to ask somebody to write something. And um, there are two ways you can approach this. I've worked a lot with dance over the last 40 years. And there are the choreographers who kind of give you a shopping list and say, I want this and I want that. And after 10 minutes, this is going to happen. And I don't want any saxophone. And, and they give you so much information that you think, well, you could probably do better by just doing it yourself. And then... Um, then there's the other kind of approach, which I prefer, which is somebody who says, what are you reading or what have you been looking at lately? And have you seen this? And, and so you arrive at a place where you're 
exploring certain kinds of ideas without having any concrete uh, plan about what you're going to do with it. But you're um, um, applying a certain kind of aesthetic based on common common ground, and then you go from there. And this was I was totally inexperienced. I'd seen Rosalind do a version of um, she danced to a, a, to Gravity, the first side of Gravity, and um, it was brilliant, absolutely wonderful. I was totally in love with it, and um, so I was excited to do something with her. At the same time, I hadn't actually written to Gravity to be danced to in that way. So she was working with something that she had found and liked, but this is an unknown territory. I didn't know what I was going to write. She didn't know what she was going to do to move to it. And um, I think I completely overwhelmed <laughs> the company. It was just uh, such a dense piece. It's, it's nonstop. It's, it's always moving. And the, and the last section with Christian Markley also is um, so much information going on there. Yeah, tell me about Christian. Well, he was, you know, talking of the downtown scene, he was a fixture in the downtown scene. We worked, we played together a lot using his turntables. So um, he was always experimenting quite extremely because he's pretty much of a visual artist as much as anything or more of an artist than a musician. And he, I remember seeing an exhibition of his in Zurich where the entire floor of the gallery was LPs. You had to walk over the LPs basically to get to see anything. So then he would, afterwards, he would then put them into jackets and sell them. So uh, the condition of the LPs was not right. And he used to experiment with gluing, chopping them up and gluing them together and gluing different ones together. So it was, it was very extreme. Mm -hmm. And... Um, at the same time, he was manipulating them like a like a keep like a turntable artist like they do, but the actual material was very radical, and I was interested again. The density interested me because he's often working with now several turntables at the same time, four or five. Mm -hmm. So there's an enormous amount of information, and that was again something that I liked. I wanted it to be dense. So complete complete failure as a dance piece, but. Uh, <laughs> interesting from other points of view obviously you saw this performed live i did i did yeah yeah i felt i felt sorry for them <laughs> it's in the liner notes it also lists uh pierre herbe Pierre Hebert. Hebert, as animation so was there live animation uh along there with was. the dance yeah there was and that probably is what saved it now <laughs> <laughs> uh, pierre is a kind of a legendary um um animator he was the director of animation at the national film board of canada at that time mm. and he was a pioneer of um, scratching directly onto film so he would be basically making loops and as the loop came around he would be continually altering what the image you were seeing was so he would start with a line and eventually the line would branch out into other lines and other lines and so he could he could create narrative starting with nothing and gradually build it up. And it was very um, touching and beautiful thing that he used to do. He doesn't do it anymore because the new technology has made it unnecessary. But this is pre-digital, of course. So he was actually, you know, doing physical things. Okay, so like some of these pieces on here are quite long, especially on the Technology of Tears tracks. I'm, I'm like a rock band guy. So I know how to write a song with a verse and a chorus and a 
verse, chorus, bridge, etc. I don't know how you compose a song like this. Are you just creating it in the studio? Are you writing this down in some form of notation for yourself? Is it created in your head beforehand? Like, how do you how do you create these this music? Goodness. Um, well, I have notebooks. Mm-hmm. I've always had notebooks. I, now I have a laptop, but I used to have notebooks. I've got piles and piles of notebooks. And wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing, I'm usually writing bits and pieces into them. So it might be ideas, instructions. It might be actual notes on a staff. So, you know, I've been writing music that way since I was a teenager. That's kind of the way I put things together. That's the way Henry Cow worked. Um, and Henry Cow's methodology has been very important in informing what I've done since because we started off also as a song band, you know, in the way you describe, but the notebook approach was also an approach to how you can reinvent yourself permanently. So the thing about Henry Cow that's interesting in retrospect is that I don't think we ever, even once, played the same concert twice over a course of 10 years. Um, we were continuously messing around with the stuff that we had done. So you might find that the middle eight from this song is now the beginning of that one, and the, the material is constantly being rejigged and reorganized and recut. And uh, you can hear this on our live recordings, how the, the material transmutes in various ways constantly. And so that became a kind of a composing methodology. And I think it's not much different the way I put together Technology of Tears. It's, uh, you know, I have notebooks with fragments of this and that in them, and I push and pull and put them next to each other and see what works. And, and then the whole composing process is a studio process. It's not a composing on paper process. It's taking the bits on paper and recording stuff and seeing how it works and then adding something else. So it's very kind of pragmatic. Mm-hmm. So on something like, you know, uh, the technology of che- Tears tracks, if I'm hearing bass, violin, guitar, all of that, you playing that in the studio or is some of that sampled into the synclavier? How does that work? Or both, probably. I think all of the instruments, the actual acoustic instruments, are so-called, you know, bass, guitar, violin, um, those are me actually playing, yes. Um, I use the synclavier as a keyboard to input certain things. But the synclavier was only used in the first movement of the three, and the other three were actually, ironically, pretty low-tech. I think I was using a Casio, you know, something really low low budget. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the things that were um, nominally trumpet parts were done on a Casio sampling keyboard um, with their generic trumpet, which, of course, doesn't sound really like a trumpet, but it's a close thing. So it's another approach to technologies on the one hand you have the synclavier which is at that time the highest technology thing you could have and the on the other hand you have the really cheap you know 90 dollar casio sampling keyboard which has got preset trumpet sounds in it which don't sound like the trumpet but which are technologically supposed to so you can you can mess i'm constantly dealing with various levels of fakery in other words (laughs) Okay, so speaking of the synclavier parts, I understand this is quite a, a large uh, piece of gear, and it says in the liner notes that uh, you recorded 
those parts in California in June of 86. So I'm assuming you took these tapes and went out to Henry's house and recorded those parts? That's pretty much it, yeah. I went to Henry's house and we, we messed around with the Synclavia. <laughs> and then I took all of that stuff and, and went away and traded my life for a studio time, basically. <laughs> <laughs> And those that I had, I had no money. So Kramer, I think I did the rest of it at Kramer's place. Is that right? Uh, well, it's yeah, it's split between Martin BC's studio and Kramer's studio. Well, the Kramer stuff, I used to trade instruments for time because I had no money. So um, I got, I think I paid, I paid for Technology of Tears with a xylophone and a four-track tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> The song titles, for example, like uh, You Are What You Eat, do these correspond with the dance at all, or are you just naming these tracks as you're, as you're recording them, or do they have something to do with choreographed dance? I doubt if I had anything to do with the choreographed dance, <laughs> because I was way too ar arrogant, and uh, I wasn't yet a good collaborator, so I was just doing my thing, and... Um, and the record came out after the effect and after the event, so um, there were probably even some changes since it was done as a dance piece. Mm -hmm. But the, the, a lot of the titles are from a poem by Sarah Miles. can't remember the name of the poem, but she wrote a book of poetry that I really liked, and she allowed me to use some of her lines as, you know, like, sadness, its bones bleached behind us, for example, is a line from one of her poems. Um, but there was no, I don't remember the rationale, I, I, you know, so long ago. Titles is a. I really like the process of naming naming music because it has an effect on how it's received, but it also has an effect on how you make it. So sometimes finding the title allows you to understand what it is that you did. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Are <laughs> <laughs> uh, the track "The Palace of Laughter" the technology of tears? I hear some sampling on that. How would you have been sampling at that time? Just on tape? I think. I'm trying to remember if by that time I had an Akai sampler. I did eventually have one, but I thought it was a little later than that. Because um, it couldn't have been the Synclavia by then. I mean, a lot of that stuff is is uh, is actually just cutting up tape. Mm. So Christian played a lot of, uh, a huge amount of stuff, and then I would take the tape and cut it. I mean, one part of that last movement, which I um, very happy with is exactly I used a kind of a John Cage technique of taking a whole bunch of tape and randomly cutting it up into pieces and then reassembling the pieces without knowing what they were so some of it's backwards some of it's forwards you don't know what the order is um, so I, I assembled uh, a, a chunk of about five minutes using that methodology and then um, listening to it back I then notated it so talk about perverse um, <laughs> I basically listened to the uh, the thing that I'd cut up and then wrote it down in a in notation, and then I played the notation with it so that you have a mixture of something which couldn't exist except by a technological process in this case editing, mm -hmm. and then played it as if it was natural. <laughs> so you're hearing both at the same time. You're hearing me playing a part to something that was cut up in small pieces. Okay. And again, this is part of the same theme of exploring, you know, the various a aspects of of uh, fakery, technology and fakery. I believe you first met Henry Kaiser in the Henry Cow days. 
Yeah, he he showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I re I remember it well because I was doing a sound check somewhere in France, and there was a guy at the other end of an empty room, and he um he advanced on me with his hand outstretched and said Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the second part of this record is Jigsaw, commissioned by the Concert Dance Company of Boston. It sounds like this was maybe a bit more collaborative in the sense of perhaps Rosalind and, again, I'll probably butcher the name, Pierre Volkos, maybe had a bit more input into what they wanted sonically. Is that a fair assessment? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think this it, I I was very happy with um, Jigsaw, and it certainly was a much more successful um, collaboration, like you say. But it, in this case, it was much more that we kind of left each other alone, mm. which was a good idea. So there was no attempt to micromanage on either side, and so I felt I was a lot freer. But there's an ironic component to this, which is that I was so. Um, stressed by what was going on behind the scenes with the technology of tears where, you know, I would finish a mix and I had a budget and then Rosalind would say, um, I don't like that. And can you take away the saxophone? And can you do this? She didn't, she really didn't like Zorn. <laughs> so there was the whole thing of trying to get rid of, and, and I kind of refused, but I had to kind of tone it down a bit which for me was the opposite of what I was trying to do. So it was generally stressful, and I kept having to change things after I thought they were finished. Mm. And so for Jigsaw, I mean, to, to, to get to the point, with Jigsaw, I decided to try an experiment. So I recorded the material. I wrote material which could be constructed differently. So everything that I recorded for Jigsaw was in kind of like three or four measure increments. And the only thing about it was that they were all in the same time signature, which I believe is 9-8, and they were all at the same tempo. So I recorded a vast amount of material in 9-8 at the same tempo. And then um, the idea was that I would say to, <laughs> I would say to Rosalind, okay, uh, rather than me do it and then you tell me all the things you want to change, why don't you just, you know, put it, glue it together? It can glue, you can glue it together in any order. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Right. Um, so I made, I, I, I constructed it, edited it. This is all tape edit. So I tape edited together a 20 minute piece using <laughs> three, three or four measure increments at, at the right tempo, which was in itself a fairly perverse and interesting thing to do. And, uh, I was waiting for her to say, okay, then you have to take this away and that away and that away and move this and that. And she said, Oh, great. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose that's maybe what is inferred when I read about this being collaborative is you, if I'm capturing the idea right, the idea was you're going to give her these individual pieces to rearrange how she sees fit to suit the dance. But ironically, the example that you provided is, is the one she ended up using. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, in a way I regretted it because I would love to have seen what would happen if we had reconstructed it. <laughs> because there are so many versions of the piece we could have done. It would be nice to think of the piece as, a, as, a, as, a, as always completely different, always a work in progress. So every time it's done, it would be a different version, right. which in the digital age now would be easy. 
in the computer, I could I could re re edit that in a couple of hours. In those days, it would take about a week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention, you know, being able to. Well, I guess you you could have mixed it down to to pl play it live for the performance. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was picturing you hauling these tapes to a theater somewhere to. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, she she got a mixed down two track version, obviously. Yes. Right. <laughs> So when you say things like, you know, she wanted you to take John Zorn out of the out of the mix, how much are you thinking like, yes, you're composing this for uh, for this dance, but you also eventually want to release this as a piece of music for people to, to purchase? How are you balancing those two things out? I wasn't really thinking about releasing it at the time I was doing it. I was really only thinking about the dance. So okay. um, then as you as you go more and more into it and you feel like there's something of value there that you want to share then that's a whole other whole other thing but um you know i would say of the pieces i've written for dance of which there have been a, a lot there's probably about 25 percent of them which have never been released uh and probably never will be for one reason or another okay. either te technical reasons because they were done there was one piece that i regret um, which was done entirely on invented instruments in paris and i had a wonderful um, instrument builder, Claudine Brahim, who she, she built these things. I would have an idea and then she would figure out how to make it work. And then she would build it like giant bagpipes operated by two people and, you know, things like that. <laughs> and uh, that piece was a very, I thought, very interesting piece, unlike anything I've done, but there were no good recordings of it. It's not the kind of thing you can go in a studio and do it. So right. it was more like an installation. So. Yeah, was Jigsaw ever performed with a with a dance troupe? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean it was it was commissioned by the, this um, company in Boston, and they did it up there. I don't know if they did it after that anywhere else, but it was certainly you know it had it had a little run. And Jim Staley, if I'm saying that right, performs on this. Who I'm assuming is someone you you had already collaborated with. I, I know he had, you put out a record of his on Rift. Who who's Jim? Jim is a legend. <laughs> Jim was the founder of Roulette, um, which at that time was in a small loft where he lived. Mm -hmm. And then he built it. Uh, so there was a kind of a small performance space. And it was a from the moment I was in New York right through until the late 80s, it was a place where that supported all kinds of, I guess you would call it, the, all of the downtown scene was supported by roulette and eventually they moved to brooklyn and it's now an even more important space um which he's still the director of so he was he had been in this i believe in the uh army or the air force so he had his training as a trombone player in the in the military which is a place where a lot of people had their training um billy bang for example so the percussion on a track like Jigsaw, is that mostly drum machines? Jigsaw. You know, I have no idea. Is there any percussion on it? Well, I guess. <laughs> I would imagine it's me hitting a drum one drum at a time. Yeah. I don't think it's a drum machine. I don't think I had one then. The third kind of, I guess, piece on, on this record is Propaganda. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This one's a little bit different. It's more a, sh a series of shorter pieces. So, uh, again, commissioned by Matthew McGuire. Who's right. That? Who's that? 
Matthew was uh, part of a theatre company. Um, gosh, you probably got, if you've got the information in front of you, you probably know better than I do. Uh, <laughs> was it a creation company? It says first performed by La Mama, ETC That's in New York. It was that was the theatre where they did it. But he had a company. He and his partner had a company called Creation, and they did theatre productions. And um, this was a unlike the pieces for dance music for theatre has a very different kind of a function because it's not so much about how you move to it. It's more, I guess, it's about transitions between scenes or emotional undercurrents to other to things. And it was very a uh, political piece. Um, very much about what was going on in Central America at the time. Um, so I had a, I had a free range to um, explore certain kinds of resonances that interested me. I had a I don't know if you know Amy Denio, but she at the time she's a fantastic musician and old friend. But she um, at the time living in Seattle had a job at the uh, Muzak Corporation. And so I was able to license music from Muzak for use in their brainwashing scenes, for example. There was, <laughs> there was a scene in the play where they would remove, obviously not for real, but they would remove the top of people's skulls and then wash their brains. <laughs> and you would hear this uh, kind of like generic Muzak going on in the background for that. So, oh, is that some of the stuff you hear on here? Like, uh, uh, which track has it? The birth of a rebel, maybe like some of that. It's almost sounds like a radio jingle or something. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly. That's exactly uh, that's what. <laughs> okay. Some of the guitar playing on here. It sounds. It sounds a lot like a Derek Bailey influence that you hear on Henry Kaiser's playing. Is that was he someone you you were influenced by? Derek. Um, as a person, absolutely. As a guitar player. To a certain degree, yes, but um, Derek and I went way back. He he and I both come from Yorkshire, and I moved to Yorkshire very to London. I mean, I, I moved to London very much against my better judgment because I hated London, and you had to go to London to have a career in music, and I rather resented having to do so. And Lowell Coxhill saw me play and said, "Oh, you should check out Derek." This was in 1971. And um, so I thought, okay, I'll check out Derek Bailey. Who's Derek Bailey? I went to see a concert of Derek, and I was the only person there. Hmm. So, <laughs> so obviously he invited me home for tea, and we became um, friends. And he was a, a very important mentor for me. Um, and I ended up playing in a lot of his company weeks, and uh, we played together a few times in various contexts. And uh, I think... Probably what he was interested in is the fact that I was so different from him. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I had a very different vocabulary and a very different approach to the instrument. Mm -hmm. But uh, I loved Derek's playing, and I loved the I loved his absolute irreverence and his um, his ability to challenge himself in any situation. So you think you get to know him and you think you know what he does and then you go to see a concert and there's something completely different going on. And that lasted all his life for me. Uh, he always surprised me every time I saw him play. So a lot of these tracks on propaganda, like I'm trying to picture or figure out how you're creating some of these sounds. <laughs> like how much of this would you say is sampled? It, it does sound like some of it was maybe sourced off of vinyl. You can hear a little bit of 
of scratching <laughs> scratching records maybe uh, I'm not sure about that I do know that um, back in the early 70s I had a friend who worked for the BBC and we were collaborating on a radio production which involved having access to the BBC archives which is a huge mm -hmm. and wonderful resource and I managed to pull out of their recordings very old recordings of um, for example Arctic seabirds and seals and uh, a lot of wildlife recordings from the you know 50s and 60s right. or earlier so the quality of the recording is not maybe not the best but uh, there's some extraordinary sounds and I think I went back and fished out some of those for propaganda the, the kind of things which sound almost like almost human and not really human right yeah. And there's some recordings of wolves in there. And, you know, I think most of that is coming from the BBC archive. Now, you reissued the entire propaganda uh, material as a standalone album in 2015. And I believe it has bonus tracks from this same session. Yeah, I, it wasn't even necessarily intended that way. What happened was that the master tape was lost. Mm. And so all I had was the source tapes pre-master. So I had a lot of extra material that didn't make it onto the record and I didn't have any of the original mixes so then I had to kind of reproduce um, the feeling of the original record but there in the meantime I was able to make some things a little bit longer and also add a few tracks that hadn't been included in the original um, partly because of the length you know it was one side of an LP it's probably like 22 minutes or something and I was able to find enough material that I could make that quite a bit longer but they're not really bonus tracks. They're actually parts of the original production that didn't make it onto the LP for practical reasons. <laughs> okay. Uh, it says that this entire uh, record was digitally remastered at New York Digital, August 87, by Paul Zinman. Now, you talked a little bit at the start about kind of this emerging technology. I don't think yeah. in we're, what, 170 episodes into the SST discography. I don't think we've seen any digital remasters yet. That must have been pretty new at the time. Yeah, and probably not very good. I mean, <laughs> Paul, was, Paul was great, but I mean, I, in general, even the records that came out, the very first CDs of mine that came out, the very first transfers um, to CD in the first generation of CD, to me, they sound absolutely horrible. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, I was so grateful to have a chance to be able to redo and remaster all of that stuff in a much better way later when the because the original record company that put them out went bankrupt. So um, hmm. I, got, I got all the rights back. So I was able to do a lot of the stuff again. Right. Thank God. <laughs> okay, the cover artist, Paul Bader. Uh, I believe he'd done some artwork for Rift. So I'm, I'm assuming he was a friend of yours or... He was a big part of the um, the youth movement in Zurich in the 80s. Uh, so I met him because playing with VFX and Skeleton Crew and um, touring in Switzerland where he was kind of... Any poster you saw for, for events back then was probably designed by him. He had a very unique style of, of artwork. And uh, he's, he was kind of the the look of the Zurich uh, underground scene in much the same way that Jamie was the, the look of the punk movement in Britain in the, in the late seventies. Right. So, um, 
And yeah, he, he's, I stayed in touch with him and he started making covers. He's been teaching at the Art Institute in Zurich for years now, I think. May even be retired by now. <laughs> uh, do you know how this record came to be released on SST? As I recall, I think Elliot Sharp told me that he had a record coming out on SST and that because I was looking for a label for it, and he's, he, I think it was him who said maybe they, maybe SST would be interested. Okay. So I sent a copy to Greg to see what he would say, and he said, yeah, we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> Tell me a bit about what you're doing now, Fred. What are you, how are you spending lockdown? Are you, are you working on some material? I thought I was going to. I mean, back uh, the last concert I did was March 13th, 2020. Mm -hmm. So it's exceeded a year without performing in public, which is a by far the longest it's ever been for me. I bet. And I thought, okay, that means I can get on with some other stuff like composing. And yeah, and it turned out I was creatively completely dead and nothing would, I, I thought I was going to do things and I wouldn't do them. And I felt I was, the only thing I was able to do was to prepare a few archival um, recordings for release. So a few, a few records have come out that probably wouldn't have come out under the normal run of things and I'm happy about that mm -hmm. and then a, about a month ago I suddenly started feeling I could write music again so I've suddenly been writing non-stop got a lot of composing done in the last month gigs are starting to announce themselves so you know I think starting in August or maybe after that there'll be some more performances is it that lack of being able to perform live that maybe saps you of your creative energy do you think that's a factor? I guess. And I, I mean, I, you know, I had offers to do a lot of this online performance stuff, but I really don't like it. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, I like being in front of real people and I like playing with real people. And um, that, uh, maybe I'm just too old for that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's been very important to, that people have done it. And I think people have really appreciated that people have tried to do it. And so I, I absolutely respect and admire the people who've managed to do that. Yeah. But I haven't been one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it works for some artists, some others, maybe not so much. And some fans as well. I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't watched any. I've watched a couple and then I turned them off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's no substitute for the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Very cool to have Fred on. Hey, like, it kind of feels like another one of those musicians, composers, like Henry Kaiser, like Elliot Sharp, where they're so prolific, it's hard to know where to start. And it's a really weird place to start with them, too. And <laughs> we've had, like albums by those types of musicians on where we have one of their albums and it's it's not very representative of their entire catalog but at the same time it kind of is right because it's all over the place yeah yeah i know what you mean it's like uh it's like having the the devil in the drain record by henry kaiser for example it's kind of a one-off in his catalog very yeah. similar to this one in the sense that it's uh you know, one of the most talked about aspects of that record is the Sinclair. Yeah. So, but it doesn't really represent his whole catalog, but yet it does because his catalog is so varied and experimental. And it has very little guitar playing on it. Yeah. 
<laughs> when you hear the guitar on it, you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. And then right away it's gone. Yeah. Let's uh, have a listen to these tracks here, Ryan. History lesson, part two. Okay, before we walk through these tracks here, Brent, I'll give you the spiel from Michael Whitaker in the SST catalog about this album because it's a good way to start off. It says, with Fred Frith as the composer of these commissioned pieces, there is no doubt that the choreography involved would strain the limits of imagination of most modern dance masters. On this two-record set, some of Fred Frith's densest and most satisfying work ever is presented. So, and it came out on double LP for 10 bucks or CD, 13 bucks. Hmm. Yeah. It's weird to hear the word dense. I think that's how Fred describes it in the interview too. He, I it think is. he says it was a complete failure as a dance piece because it was too dense, something like that. You either have to, you either have to have it in the background and like not listen to it that hard, or you really, really need to listen to it to understand what's going on. And of course this week we had to listen to it very closely multiple times. And it is, it sometimes is a bit exhausting. I'll put it that way. Well, the pieces are very long too. So there's a lot, a lot of things happening in them. Yeah. So we'll start with the first suite technology of tears recorded at BC studio, June 86, and Noise New York, November of 87 through January of 87. The Sinclair part was recorded in California, June of 86. Martin BC, Louis Fleck, and Sue Fisher engineered it. The At BC, I'm assuming, the engineer for Noise was Kramer. Kramer we've talked about on the show before. He owned yep. and operated Noise New York and Noise New Jersey, two different studios. Owned and operated Shimmy Disc Records, played in a bunch of projects, including Bongwater, Shockabilly, and many, many more. And uh, Shimmy Disc was recently revived in partnership with Joyful Noise last year. So track one is called Sadness, It's Bones Bleached Behind Us. 13 minutes long, the All Music Review, which I'll be referencing a few times, uh, by Blue Gene Tyranny, that's the name of the reviewer, Love that. Yeah. He calls this an unrelenting slice of hard edge sound over a pulse. Yeah. So that pulse, did that pulse, the piano pulse, remind you of anything? Surprise quiz. I'm trying to think. Maybe the helicopters or something? Just that opening piano, ding, 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 ding. What does that remind you of? Well, there's a helicopter song called By the Grace of God that does that. That's the first yeah. thing that comes to mind. Okay. That's pretty good. I wasn't thinking of that. Gimme Danger, maybe? Maybe, yes, yes. It doesn't start with that piano. It doesn't but... start, but it comes in. The clanging piano, and yes, a okay, good one. All right. Hmm. You haven't hit No the... means no? No. Okay, well, I'll tell you what I was thinking. There is a song called Respirator on the first album by Human Impact on Ipecac. Hmm. Respirator. It's, uh, it starts off almost the same note, same rhythm. It sounds very much like this, and of course, from New York, and that's the that's why I made that connection. Okay. Check out Human Impact Respirator. Okay, I think it's cool the way he kind of gets the beat going, not with a drum, but by pounding it out on a piano or keyboard. Yeah. Uh, drum machines of some sort eventually come in. Um, some stabbing guitar chords, 
the violin comes in and kind of changes the time signature up. Violin was Fred's first instrument. He started taking lessons at age five. Yeah. Things take a drastic turn close to the five-minute mark when John Zorn kind of announces himself. Zorn, we've talked a lot about on the show, New York City composer, an avant-garde experimental musician. Uh, like Fred, he's a multi-instrumentalist, but is primarily known f for the instrument he's playing here, the saxophone. Yeah, and Fred played bass in Zorn's band, Naked City. Yes, he did, yeah. Around the eight-minute mark, we hear Tenko for the first time. She's best known as co-founder of the Japanese band Mizutama Shoborden, a.k.a. Polka Dot Fire Brigade. Uh, she's also collaborated with tons of different artists. Yeah, that's the ha vocals. Yeah. yeah, and like he says in the interview, he both, his interest in was like sampling the artists, but then also having them perform live over the track. Mm -hmm. So hard to know, you know, which of this is sampled and which is recorded in some the studio. It, some it's more obvious on some of the later tracks where it's like, okay, well, you're manipulating that human voice. On this one, yeah. it's tough to tell. And I think, if I'm right, this is the track that he uses the synclavier on. Mm, possibly. Track two, You Are What You Eat. On the LP version, uh, the other 11 minutes, 39 seconds of this are continued on side B, but on the CD, it's just one track, 18 minutes, 46 seconds. Yeah, this one has got, for me, like an Eastern European gypsy, sometimes Bavarian type of vibe to it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, again, here you hear those technological comparisons he talks about between real and virtual voices. I think, anyways, it sounds like Tenko is both sampled and live on this track. Mm -hmm. It's almost proggy, in a way, the way the counter rhythms work once it gets going. There are definitely some prog bands that play like this. Yeah. No. There's kind of this ascending pattern that he keeps re returning to that works really well. This is all really difficult to describe. This is up there with Elliot Sharp's Tessellation Row for me and the degree of difficulty trying to accurately describe it. Yeah, oh, I hear you. And then we get into The Palace of Laughter, The Technology of Tears, a 10-minute track. The All Music Review says it's an imaginative, intense, varied suite comparing music which represents the past frozen tears of sadness displayed as images before us by the media, etc., with the hot tears of the moment that cannot be absorbed by technology. Yeah, this is the one that I thought the Sinclavier was on with the drum machine sounds and kind of the Axel F synth sounds. You could program that into a Sinclavier, I, I would have thought, but who knows? Yeah. So the website that has the Fred's record reissues on it RER Megacorp, uh, they're talking about how the technology of the Synclavier fascinated Fred and how this part is different from the, the first two. He, they say, here Fred adopts a completely different methodology, playing everything himself, mostly on low-grade instruments, then inviting turntablist Christian Markley oh. to add plundered parts. Here is a completely different approach to sampling, exploring dense layers of quotation intercut with melodies formed using random editing processes with subsequent transcription and reperformance. So I, I think this is the piece he was randomly splicing tape. Yep. Uh, we've got those trumpet sounds, which I think he says he made on a Casio. 
Christian we've heard before. He's on Elliot Sharp's Land of the Yehus record. I didn't pick out the trumpet in the same way. I mean, I that's that's probably the sound that I thought was the Axel F <laughs> type of synthesizers. I picked out right. the trumpets on um, the weird muted trumpet sound on the next track, Jigsaw. Yeah, so if we're on LP, we're going to side C, the third side of vinyl, for the track Jigsaw, 14 minutes, 39 seconds. Recorded at New York Noise, October of 86, presumably by Kramer. This is the piece made up of individual musical cells, each recorded separately, all the same tempo and the same key, uh, and then spliced together, hence the track name. The idea was that Rosalind Newman could arrange the segments as she saw fit, but then she ended up using what you hear on the record. We've got guitar, bass, violin, snare drum, backwards tape, all of the musical cells kind of share the same ideas, so it doesn't sound unnatural spliced together. Mm-hmm. Fades out at the four and a half minute mark and then becomes a bit more varied. Here's on that RER Megacorp website again. Also made for Rosalind Newman, reflecting the frustrations experienced making Technology of Tears, where every time Fred would complete a stable version, Rosalind would ask for changes. Incidentally, sending the recording way over budget. This time Fred decided to make a modular piece that could be reassembled in any way requested, having no predetermined structure at all. This piece has Jim Staley on trombone, I think kind of mixed in with what sounds like the Casio trombone sound again. Jim has many albums under his own name, some collaborations with Zorn, several other collaborators. We'll be seeing him again when we get to the Elliott Sharp and Carbon albums that came out on SST. And then a highlight for me is... Uh, the next track, Jigsaw Coda, just a short three-minute piece. Uh, Jim Staley playing a cool piece on the trumpet with Fred playing a pattern on guitar that kind of has a counter melody to Jim's playing. It's one of my favorite musical moments on the record and probably the one with the most traditional instruments in it. My notes say it's still really out there, but it is by far the most traditional song on this record. Like it's, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a relief moment when you get to it on the album, uh, because you're just like, okay, this sounds like something a bit more familiar. It still is wild though. Yeah. Has sounds like a real, what sounds like a real snare drum keeping time. Mm -hmm. Fred doing a cool walking bass line. That takes us Ryan to the final side of the vinyl, uh, which is propaganda, much shorter pieces recorded at noise Mm -hmm. april 87 here's from all music music for a theater production a series of brilliantly evocative sound pieces with electronics guitar and sound effects feedback and explosions in the distance tantric harmonizing in the desert and here's from that rer website uses a host of avian and mammalian voices snippets of unidentified musical material and electroacoustic noise sculpting, as well as invented and real instruments played by Fred. This was a hard time, and the mood is intense, lean, and not cheerful, though there are some gruesomely cheery inserts. There's no fat, but a lot of meat here. It's 14 tracks. The CD reissue has 21. The cover of the reissue has a dramatic-looking photo on it that I suspect may be from one of the performances. Did you get a chance to listen to these tracks anywhere, Ryan? Yes, I had to listen to it on YouTube. 
Okay. All of the uh, it's it's around 24 minutes long, 14 vignettes, I would say. Yeah, yeah, very short pieces compared to the the rest of the record. All on side D of the vinyl, we've got shelter for them all. Pretty keyboard heavy, at least to my ear. It's actually difficult to discern what many of the instruments are on some of these recordings. The next one, A Deeper Understanding of Conflict. This is the one that makes me think of the TV show Law and Order. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like when they cut between scenes. Don't, don't. Yeah. I like this one, though. This is one of my faves. Creates a cool mood. Uh, the Turning of an Hourglass. Sounds like he's maybe hitting the guitar strings with something like a drumstick and just doing pull-offs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Birth of a Rebel. This is the schmaltzy music he mentions in the interview where they're washing people's brains in the actual production. Right. That sounds cool. Yep. Then it goes into a short piece that really kind of invokes an image of of, the, of brainwashing, like once you hear him describe it. Your Beautiful Corpse is next. This is definitely some of the wildlife sounds that he sourced from the BBC archives. Avian and mammalian. Yep. <laughs> Uh, a track I really liked, The Excellent Hyena. This really ratchets up the tension with this kind of ascending trumpet-sounding riff. It's a bit like a drone. It's only one and a half minutes. I would have actually liked this one to go on a bit longer. Track 7, The Old Man Moves a Mountain. More of the brainwashing and back into the law and order thing again. Then it shifts into some more of those hammer-ons with a staticky radio in the back. The Wolf Demon Part 1. There's the BBC Wolves and pl playing what I was referencing in the interview, uh, what I thought was Derek Bailey-esque guitar playing, who I am by no means an expert on. Definitely sounds like Henry Kaiser-ish playing as well. Yes. Uh, who I know was greatly inf influenced by Derek Bailey. The next track, Meditation Upon Propaganda. One of the longer pieces at three minutes. Really liked this one. Several guitars playing these kind of counter patterns, but then they come together every once in a while in this discordant chord. Really liked this one. Track 10, Liberty. Some heavy percussion, kind of rhythmic breathing, more wildlife, more law and order. Halfway through it, it's got one, <laughs> one of the brainwashing tunes, kind of skipping around some wolves, a snare drum. It's wonderfully weird. He goes back to a lot of the same themes on this propaganda suite. The Relentless Landscape, almost a slight return to the pattern we hear in, an, in the excellent Hyena track, but way noisier. The Gaze That Sings, some more heavily manipulated BBC wildlife with some droning keyboards behind it. The Wolf Demon Part 2, more of what I call that Derek Bailey guitar, more wolves. And then the last track, Rashaman, the longest tra track in the propaganda suite at 3 minutes 30 seconds. More guitar hammer-ons with some atmospheric stuff going on. He calls this in the interview a political piece. He says, it, propaganda, that it was based around what was going on in South America at the time. I'm not sure there's anything directly in the music that would indicate that. Hmm. At least not to me. The entire four sides of vinyl clock in at one hour, 24 minutes. Pretty sure making this the longest record we've we've done. Yeah. Uh, Double Nickels is one hour, 14 minutes. 
Zenarcade, one hour, ten minutes. Everything went black, one hour, two minutes. Yeah, this would be the longest. Yeah, I didn't go through some other double albums like No Age, but I think this probably is the longest for sure. Pretty cool, though. Like, this is one of those records I never would have checked out if it weren't for this podcast. Oh, I for sure would not have checked it out. Um, I have never sought out Fred as a solo player. It's always been he is on records that I've checked out by other artists. Yeah. So it's cool that way. And, you know, I don't mind music concrete in little splashes here and there on some of the other artists I like, but an entire album almost of sounds like that is not something I would have normally checked out. Yeah. It's cool that SST put this out for sure. Yeah. I've got a spiel from the trouser press on this record. Oh, cool. So it, it kind of covers what we've already talked about though, but it says much of Frith's work in the late eighties was oriented towards film and theater scores. The technology of tears offers not one, but three of Frith's dance company commissions. Two sides of the double album contain the titular piece created in 1986 with John Zorn, an occasional scat vocalist, and fake art turntable manipulator Christian Markley. Although largely a flighty and disjointedly arrhythmic effort, parts do coalesce with the arcane logic of Frith's structuralism. The high-strung and disturbing jigsaw also from 86 with trombonist Jim Staley and the enticingly diverse episodes of propaganda, each fill aside. Hmm. And then there's also a spiel from the insert of my version of technology of tears. You're talking the poem. Yeah. By Zbigniew Herbert. Yeah. You want to hear that? Yeah, I do. Can I butcher that name one more time? (laughs) Yeah. It might be Zbigniew Hiber. Yes, or he, he says the name in the interview. Yeah. So Zbigniew Hiber. Here's the poem from the Technology of Tears. In our present state of knowledge, only false tears are suitable for treatment and regular production. Genuine tears are hot, for which reason it is very difficult to remove them from the face. After their reduction to a solid state, they have proved to be extremely fragile. The problem of commercially exploiting genuine tears is a real headache for technologists. False tears, before being quick frozen, are submitted to a process of distillation, since they are by nature impure, and they are reduced to a state in which, with respect to purity, they are hardly inferior to genuine tears. They are very hard very durable and thus suitable not only for ornamentation but also for cutting glass Mm. and this was translated too how about that cover art yeah kind of a interesting digital looking pixelated grid with kind of a cartoony face superimposed over top and then when you look at the insets you can see it's like that cartoony face is flipped over and on what looks to be like a cartoon of someone falling to their death almost. Yeah, it fits the music really well. What's the artist's name again? Cover design by 
Peter Bader and cover images and photos by Pierre Ebert, who's a uh, Canadian animator. Yeah, so it, the National Film Board's a kind of a big deal here in Canada. At least it was when we were kids. Pretty cool history behind it. There's a website. You can watch a bunch of his uh, stuff on there too. Yeah. Like, And it definitely the, gives you an indication of, uh, you know, what Fred talks about in the interview, how he would have animated this live. The film board is still a big deal here in Canada. It's just that we have more than three channels now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, like growing up, it was on you know, the CBC. It was, it there was would on be CBC na- all the time. Yeah, National yeah. Film Board productions on the CBC all the time. Um, very focused on government-funded art and nature film projects, and um, it was it was part of what we grew up on. Because, and I'm not joking. I mean, the CBC was one of our three channels, and that was it. Pretty cool that they funded some of that stuff, though. Because if you go on that National Film Board film board of canada website like there's they did some pretty avant-garde stuff oh for sure for sure time for the ballot result yeah man ballot result so here's the question are we going long or are we going short well i i almost feel like we shouldn't be picking individual tracks like i feel like if we should be putting an entire suite on it is really tough to parse some of this stuff out, and and I am probably unfairly drawn toward Jigsaw Coda because I've been listening to this on a CD, and it's the last track on the CD, and that and then it is a very relieving piece of music relative to the other stuff. So where did you go? Yeah, well, that was one of my favorites, but I liked the Palace of Laughter, the Technology of Tears. I liked some of the propaganda stuff, like a deeper understanding of conflict, the excellent hyena, meditation upon propaganda. But look, man, I want people to check this whole thing out, so we should put Jigsaw Coda on our mixtape. I mean, we don't have time room on our mixtape for a 15-minute epic anyways, so... Yeah, unfortunately, that is the truth. Jigsaw Coda it is, but people should check it out. Yeah. Hey, thanks to Fred for, for being on the show. Like, I never would have gotten, figured out a lot of this stuff, obviously, without having him on, so. Yeah, we're lucky to have Fred Frith on. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, we're going back to HR. We had him on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, now it's SST 173. Then now you say, no return 12-inch. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.